0: At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits.
1: Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what?
0: But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people, all working toward the ultimate goal. Best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how
1: deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask
2: the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit. You forced me to use force. Why do you sell me by a rabbit instead?
1: I imagine. Right now, you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole.
0: Hello and welcome to Best in Show. I'm Briani Smith. I'm here with the wonderful and talented Alan Messick today. And um, we're going to do a, a little bit of a special edition today to introduce the other side of our hobby. We want to start out first with what's going on in the rabbit world. Um, if you've not already, I would like to encourage everyone to visit the ARBA webpage. The Standards Committee tabs have been updated there. The rabbit tab shows all of the varieties and breeds under working standards. The process has changed a little bit so that working standards are active upon approval of a COD. We really hope that that will get people to bring these animals out, get them on tables, start promoting these varieties, um, and give them some good momentum even before the presentations begin. Another change is that we now have a separate KV tab. You'll find information there for KVs. There will be application forms that are specific to KVs. Um, So we really want to promote the fact that the uh, KV Standards Committee is not a subcommittee anymore. It's a sister committee to the Rabbit Standards Committee. So, Alan, what's been going on in your world?
1: I love all that stuff, and it's really going to lead into uh, the the bulk of our talk today, which is going to be on KVs. And as you mentioned, like they are an important facet of our of our ARBA and our industry, um, not only here in the United States, but where ARBA sanction shows are occurring in other parts of the world, such as in Southeast Asia. So, um, I have some some news out of Houston. The 2021 Houston Livestock Show, which, by the way, historically was kind of unearthed last year during COVID. It was really the first national public event, not only for livestock showing, but really the first like um, you know community event where hundreds of thousands of people visit. Last year, like right smack dab in the middle of the 2020 Houston Livestock Show, it was uh, turned up on its on its end, and uh, everyone was told to go home because of COVID, and it was it was locked down. So it was really it made a lot of press. But anyway, this year in 2021, the Houston Livestock Show is back on. And uh, from the KV side, there were actually 121 youth KVs in the recent KV show, which uh, according to the show staff and judge was a record turnout. So hats off to all the KV breeders who showed up at the 2021 Youth Houston Livestock show for such huge numbers. So uh, KVs are very much on the forefront of what we're talking about.
0: That's excellent. I know we've seen a lot of growth through the past few years. Um, KV shows developing with rabbits, um, a lot of rabbit judges being interested in raising KVs and getting dual licenses. So it's really good to promote this side of the hobby and see those kind of numbers.
1: I love it. And, you know, we do work, we're two different species, but we do work hand in hand and we do piggyback off of each other. And um, so it's, 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 I love that we're going to do episode five this week with uh, a a KV guest and we'll talk about her in a second. Um, But let's take a little uh, step back in time for this time in 1991. And I know Brian, you've got some excellent ARBA facts for us, um, but I'm going to start with world events. Uh, in 1991, the Hubble Telescope was launched. The USSR finally came to a formal end. Uh, the number one film in 91 was actually uh, Terminator 2. And all right, Brian, I'm going to quiz you now. What do you think were the top three TV shows in
0: 1991? Oh, gosh. Um, no. I don't think Friends or Seinfeld was on yet. Those seem a lot newer. Um
1: I would have guessed those two. I was really surprised at number one.
0: Yeah. Cheers. Um, that was, was that four? still going? Dallas, maybe?
1: I didn't see that one on the list, but Cheers was number four. And so that was still going. Okay. okay. Are you ready? Yes. The number one TV show in 1991 was actually 60 Minutes. Wow. Isn't that uh, interesting. I respect that. <laughs> right? Like, uh, it's a news program. i, I yeah, totally, totally shocked, and that's uh, cool. Uh, two and three were not surprising once I read them. Uh, number two was Roseanne. And number three, remember Candice Bergen and Murphy Brown? Oh, yes. (laughs) How could you forget that hair?
0: (laughs) Those shoulder pads.
1: Oh, my God. Okay, so what was going on in 1981 on the uh, ARBA side?
0: Well, um, a new standard of perfection came out. This is actually the first one that I owned and studied. Um, My mom, you know, says, oh, you read it in bed all the time. (laughs) Um, So it was um, produced both both in paperback and hardcover. It was dedicated to James Blythe and Oscar Sinewald, um which is really interesting. Both of them were still alive at the time of publication. Um, it said that James Blythe, better known as Jimmy, is the oldest living member and licensed judge of the ARBA. He had a continuous membership spanning 74 years and 70 years as a judge. Incredible. He was 94 years old on October 31st, 1990. Um, he was also uh, an ARBA director and secretary, which he held from 1946 to 1973. Wow! And Oscar Sinewald is, at the time of publication, is the oldest surviving charter member of the first National Association for Rabbits, the forerunner of ARBA as we know it today. Um, he re- became a member of the Detroit Pet Stock Association in 1907 at the age of nine the age of 12, he was present. and became a charter member of the National Association, which was formed in 1910. He received his judge's license in 1916. So he would have been 18 years old and retired from judging in 1941 and became superintendent of the Michigan State Fair Rabbit Show in 1916, a position which he held for 30 years. So it's really incredible to me to think that when I was starting, some of these people who first started the association were still around. And, you know, our history was still very much evolving. We were still a young organization at that time.
1: I think it's also cool to think about uh, the last judge that you mentioned got his license when he was 18, which tells me that um, the ARBA for for decades has supported young people. And this wasn't something that you had to be a lifelong veteran to, you know, become involved in and have sort of, um, you know, veteran status that that we've embraced young minds just as as well as we've embraced those that have been around a long time.
0: Yeah. And, and he was 12 when he was invited to help put this association together. Yeah. I think that's awesome.
1: So awesome. And I think that's a true nod to maybe why we still embrace those, those, uh, those kind of habits today that, you know, young people are certainly capable of, of having a, a great outlook. They're <laughs> certainly capable of, of jumping in there and, and lending a hand, whether it's physical or, um, you know, or, 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 men- or mental. So uh, super cool. That's probably why Maybe you and I are still here today because you know, we got hooked when we were kids. And, well, uh, this
0: association has a long history of mentorship, and, and I really like it about that.
1: Yeah, that's why we stick around. Well, so
0: the members of the Standards Committee in this book were Oren Reynolds, Walter Zahn, um, known as half of Bagby and Zahn, mm-hmm. J. Leo Collins, Don Matthews, Ebert McGeehee, better known as Fibber, Richard Gere, who's still an active judge, Yes, Mike Withrow, and Ivan Miller. And there's some interesting things flipping through here. Um, it begins with a list of ARBA recognized colors. And there are some in here that we haven't heard in a long time. Um, oh, colors um, like blue cream, Isabella. Um, every once in a while, you still do hear Holland Lottbrews talking about a Madagascar tort, that, which is really rufousy red tort. hmm Um, But there's a color in here. One of the first ones, actually the first one listed, is called beige. And this one confused me because I'm kind of a genetic geek and I don't even know what this is. (laughs) Um, It says the top edge to be a very narrow beige band, chamois color. Above this is a very light band, brightly ticked with beige hairs. The intermediate portion bluish white over a medium beige undercolor. Neck fur lighter than body, but strictly confined to the nap of the neck. Chest to match intermediate color. The body color to extend as far down the sides as possible. Belly color bluish white. Eye circles be well-defined, narrow, and match belly color. Toenails to carry pigmentation. Eyes brown with a ruby glow. So it sounds like something shaded, but um, Sable Agouti, Sable Chinchilla, is in here as a different color. So I don't know what that might be. I'd be really interested if anybody knows.
1: Well, it's funny. But we're we're going to talk to our, our podcast today is dedicated to cavies. And beige is a KV color, of course, and that does not. That what you described is certainly not consistent with what we call beige in KVs today. Honestly, when I'm reading, it, I'm thinking, or when you're reading it, I'm thinking it sounds like a frosty with the brown ice. Kind of triggered that when you finally said that. Yeah. Uh, but what was the belly color described as?
0: Um, there frosted pearl is actually a separate color in here, as is
1: ermine. Oh, um, was like a what it was the pearl belly pearl.
0: color? Is bluish white.
1: That's that's strange. Yeah, it would be white, right?
0: yeah it's really interesting i'm trying to figure out what this is you know several of these colors in here and it may be a shade of something it could be like a you know a light sable chin or something like that um because there are colors in here that are obviously just kind of different shades of the same genotype like the madagascar and the tort right. um and we still to this day have some of that and especially in the lop colors you know fawn and orange they're both intense colors they both call for brown eyes they're just shades of um the same genotype, but yeah, that one, that one's really interesting.
1: So interesting.
0: So flipping through some more, um, there's a definition in the glossary for hog fat, which is What's... a rabbit that is obviously over fattened and consequently out of proportion for the true type
1: of the breed. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like that's gotta be something like out of, um, like a packing house. It's got like, it's gotta be a, a Midwest, like Chicago, Denver, kind of adult, <laughs> right. like, like, a, like, you know, slaughtering Livestock.
0: So back in this standard, and this was the last one, there were a lot of changes um, from 95 to 96. In fact, I saw a comment the other day and I kind of giggled. Someone said they'd been in the 80s. They were complaining that there were so many changes in the new standard. I'm like, oh, no, no. I haven't been around that long. And there were huge changes between this standard and the one that was released in 96. One of the big ones was um, in the 91, 95 standard, we still had eliminations and disqualifications. Eliminations, and it, it even says here, in general eliminations, all breeds, the following ailments are considered to be temporary in nature and nature and curable. All are judgmental and not subject to protest. So you have all sorts of ailments, you know, ear canker, slobbers, pot belly sore hocks, vent disease, et cetera. Um, then so general was- eliminations, permanent earmark, overweight, underweight teeth, uh, missing or broken, not malocclusion. That was a disqualification.
1: okay
0: And testicles um, and then wrong sex breed group or variety.
1: So both a disqualification and an elimination in that day would have prevented you from going farther on the show table, right?
0: Right. They were handled the same way. Um, The wrong sex breed, grouper variety, of course, that was a, you know, elimination and it reduced the number in class. Um, But they were handled the same way. You would just say this rabbit is eliminated for, this rabbit is disqualified for. And then it couldn't compete any further. Um, but you kind of had to know which was which. And I remember when I was first starting out in youth contests, that was a big thing we were asked. Um, in 96, that was all rolled into just disqualifications from competition.
1: So, I mean, not without knowing the history behind this, but there's some similarities with unworthy of an award and also uh, protests that, or not protests, but uh, disqualifications which change the number in the class. Like if you have a wrong sex, wrong breed, um, you know, the wrong variety, that changes the number in the class. So there was some consistency there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, basically it was just the same, except you would say elimination instead of disqualification. And even in the list of general disqualifications, there are some that are um, considered judgmental and not subject to protest. Interestingly, um, most of the ailments are on the elimination side. But um, what is listed as colds or a white nasal discharge was not. That was general disqualification. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, totally. I love this stuff.
0: Then we move to unworthy and award. That has changed a little bit. Um, it says, when any rabbit is competing in a class, the judge shall use his own good judgment. If, in his opinion, the animal would not would be placed in good competition, it shall be given a placement. If not, it shall not be placed in a notation made by the judge, unworthy of award. He may, if he wishes, go into detail and explain his decision. At no time shall a single animal in a class be given second, third, fourth, or fifth. It shall either be worthy of a first place with only one in the class or not placed with the above remark. It is possible that more than one rabbit competing in the same class can be determined to be unworthy of award, which makes me wonder, did somebody find one rabbit in a class and say that this is fourth?
1: (laughs) Right, like they're like, okay, this doesn't deserve to be first, so therefore I'm just going to, you know, shove it at the end of the glass. And, and I I feel comfortable putting it there. I think in some, I think in some species, I may be totally wrong. So I'm going to get called out on this, but I think in poultry, you don't have to award a first place. Do you know anything about that?
0: You know, that kind of sounds familiar. And I think in some cases, like, especially stuff that is more centered around fairs or that type of livestock show, oh, yes. it like allows for a premium to be paid, but not a first place premium. I'm, and again, I may be totally wrong on this. Um,
1: I see nice, you going like a, almost like where you're judging a county fair, it's not sanctioned, but you have like a uh, blue merit, red merit, and white merit. And anyone in the class could, exa- for example, could earn blue, could earn white, you know, it's up to the judge's discretion. It's more like a like a Danish style judging,
0: right? Exactly, exactly. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, very. Flipping through breed standards, um, giant angoras at the time could could be shown in blue eyed white and ruby eyed white. They were shown together. What? Um No kidding. Yep, the blue eyed white was not in the next standard. This because they were shown together. It wasn't for you know lack of failing to have twenty five in the show. I think it was. Likely, I mean, just my best guess is that they looked around and there no nobody was raising any. <laughs> yeah,
1: we'll <laughs> get that in
0: <laughs> Yeah, we just we don't really have these. Um, let's see. There were some other really interesting things in here. Um, Flemish giants. There is a table of ideal weights for Flemish giants um, for bucks and does from two months through eight months and then into a senior class. So, um, and I don't know if this is more for judges or more for, you know, breeders trying to raise a top quality Flemish giant, but two months, they should be five to six pounds, three months, seven, eight pounds, four months, nine pounds, basically a pound a month from there.
1: I mean, it sounds more like breeder perspective in terms of, you know, going out there and gauging your litters. Um, But then again, don't we still have ideal weights listed in our current standard?
0: We do in some breeds. Um, not all breeds have an ideal weight. So I think, yeah, again, I think that's, you know, kind of to, to help breeders select, but also to, you know, encourage judges to choose maybe rabbits that are kind of on the right path to be ideal Flemish.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And a breed like that where growth is important. I can see it.
0: Yeah. Um, the Harlequin standard, um, we talked in a previous episode about the fact that they used to be shown by variety and then group, and they were still in this standard it also showed both a three-part and a four-part front.
1: Mm. Do you know what that is?
0: Yeah. Um, the three-part front, of course, the ears alternate with the face, which alternate with the chest.
1: Yep.
0: In a four-part, um, the ears alternate with the face, which alternate with the chest. But then there was another alternation um,
1: on the feet. Right. So I, my mentor in rabbits was actually a har- harlequin breeder. And she used to gripe about the fact that a four-part front was a fault. In yeah. The standard that I grew up in, in the in, in mid and in late 90s, because doesn't it sound more complicated to have the ears alternate with the face to alternate with the chest to then alternate with the front feet? So yeah, that's a fault now in, in the in the current standard, because essentially the face doesn't alternate with, you know, the entire feet, which are lumped into the chest. Crazy stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, every once in a while, you see one and again, I have to mm-hmm. fault it. But I'm like, yeah, I remember there was a four part standard and, <laughs> and it was just as ideal as three part. Um. Many lop colors. Um, not all of the lops were like this. Um, as today, it lists the groups that are accepted in the breed. Um, so agouti, broken, pointed, white, self, shaded, solid, and ticked. Instead of a lop color guide, you would refer back to that list of colors at the beginning of the standard. Um, that was kind of you know ambiguous, and I noticed a lot of them would accept either brown or gray eyes, which I thought was interesting. Very. Um, but it says on many lops under color and markings, there's a note that says many lops that fall into a recognized group but do not fit a described color are to be faulted and not eliminated or disqualified. Only the recognized groups are eligible for exhibition, which is really interesting because they still to salt and broken. Mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, as long as it's a goodie something, it's fine.
1: Well, I'm not going to like, you know, be too, uh, I'm not going to stir the pot too much. But I mean, I'll admit that I hear many lop breeders say a lot like, oh it's a mini lop. When you go, when, you, when you're like trying to dissect something, <laughs> you, like, Alan, it's a mini lop. I like, I know, but I still want to find out if it's recognized or not guys. So I, maybe that mentality actually stems from an old standard, which basically said, you know, Hey, if you're not, if you're not one of these, then uh, keep on going. <laughs> like yeah. just being eliminated. So funny.
0: English and French lops. um, Brindled was a recognized group. And brindled is described as an intermixture of two colors of hairs. It could be either black and orange or black and white. So that sounds like, you know, a really like brindled harlequin type color, which is interesting.
1: Or even I wonder if the silver fox fall into that.
0: Silver fox is a separate color. Um, That's been part of it. Um, Rex which now have a lot of varieties and, of course, are showing in groups beginning this year. The accepted varieties in 1991 were Blue, Californian, Castor, Chinchilla, Lynx, Opal, Red, Seal, Tortoise, White, and Broken Group. There was no black,
1: interestingly enough. So once was-
0: Black were recognized, you didn't see any seals on the table anymore.
1: <laughs> endangered variety of the rex after Black himself recognized.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> oh, we should have a Minirex, a uh, longtime rex veteran on here one time to talk about the development of, of the breed. I think there'd be some really funny stories about that color because every time I hear the stories, I have to laugh.
0: Oh, I think so. Um, And the Californian color that was actually accepted in black or blue points, they changed that to Himalayan in order to be consistent with um, the rest of the standards. So now uh, a Californian color is black only, or as close to black as possible. It's a a dark sepia, actually. Um, But anything that recognizes more than just the black version goes by the name Himalayan in any breed um silver fox the blue silver fox was recognized it was dropped from the standard in 1996 for lack of showing and there have been several attempts to get this recognized again in fact um there was a cod just filed at the end of last year so exhibitions will start again in 2023
1: good luck to all those breeders
0: yes absolutely it's been a long time coming a lot of people raise
1: these and i think that they actually they exist kind of naturally if you're a silver fox breeder they 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 pop up, so it makes sense for them to, to want this as a variety. It's not something they're trying to necessarily create, but they're already you know in existence.
0: Oh yeah, it's part of the gene pool already and has been for a long time. Now, the most interesting part in the back, um, there's a standard guide for judging meat classes, which in you know current standards is up toward the front. It talks about meat pens, stewers, roasters, single fryers, etc. This had meat classes for live judging and for judging after dress out. There was a standard for that.
1: Where was this done? At shows or conventions only?
0: Um, apparently at any show. Um we'll we'll have to ask some people that have been around longer than we have. In yeah. the meat classes, it talks about, you know, DQs and eliminations apply except for um body smut non descended testicles. That's the same. Mm-hmm. Um, meat pens consist of three rabbits. All rabbits must be weighed in presence of the judge. At the end, it says in all meat pens, it is optional as to whether they are butchered or not. This is up to the show committee, but if they are to be butchered, the show catalog must so state no butchering allowed in the showroom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, no breeding in the showroom. No butchering either.
0: Yeah. So I guess maybe it was like Angora's now where you do your butchering outside, <laughs> not in the showroom, but, um, Yeah. And honestly,
1: that's a, I, I know we we would never be able to get away with it today in our in our society. but um I mean, how many times do we we hear gripes from exhibitors about, you know, gosh, the the meat standard and the and the the show standard are not the same thing. you know so when when you have the ability to butcher a rabbit there at the show after judging it live, I mean, you really get to see the carcass difference and and whether or not those similarities are are there or not. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I wasn't around back then doing rabbits, so I can't talk about the body types then. But it would be certainly interesting now to to do that. Um, maybe even like a, a judge's conference done prior to the event, where pictures could be shown. I don't know. It'd be kind of cool.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so there's scorecards for judging, um, meat pens, single fryers, stewers, and roasters, both live and as a dressed carcass. So I'll just read here. Um, this is for the scorecard for judging roasters and stewers, dressed carcass dress out percentage is 40 points. Appearance is 60 points with 20 for shape or type, 15 for color, 10 for texture, 10 for fat, five for organs. And the description of fat is to be light in color, not yellow. Um, Yellow fat was a fault in a dressed carcass. Um, I believe it was a DQ. I don't Maybe it wasn't. I always thought it was. That term was in the standard until just this next one. Yellow fat was in the glossary. We finally took it out. Um, Disqualifications were spotted liver, any unnatural growths, any condition not normal to a healthy rabbit. Hmm. It says to get correct and true dress out weight, the carcass should be weighed as soon as possible after dressing and in the presence of the judge. Way before putting in water. Note, if there is a friar fur class, this class should be judged prior to judging the friar class in the event there will be butchering. No kidding. Mm -hmm. It is further suggested that the top six placing live animals, and conceivably no more than 10, be butchered if there is to be addressed carcass competition. So it's really interesting, and it speaks to the commercial beginnings of this hobby. Um, Well, not, not necessarily beginnings. As we know, it was a Belgian hair craze that began showing rabbits in the United States prompted. Um, the establishment of what became the ARBA. But the hobby really took off after the Depression and the Second World War when people had raised rabbits as food for their family.
1: Yeah, when people were eating rabbit instead of today where you're like, you, you eat you eat what? You can't do that. You know, in it, other parts of the world, it still is very much that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and And that's when they really started to become seen as livestock and, you know, probably parts of county fairs. And the numbers went up and, you know, for a long time, the commercial rabbits were the rabbits to beat at the shows.
1: Yeah. I mean, look back at convention best in shows, for example. I mean, how many times do you look in there and and see a a New Zealand winning best in show? I mean, it was, they were, they were a powerhouse for some decades.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, an interesting um, look back. There were um, two fewer KV breeds than we have now. Coronets and Texels had not been recognized. There was actually a KV standards committee Listed in the front, um, Sheila. So like now, yeah, it, it looks like it. Um, okay. Sheila Schwartz Zick was the chairperson. I may have butchered that name, so I apologize. Um, Tim Patty, Ron Smelt, Margot Purdy, Kathy Reed, Harry Klaus, and Chuck Steele were members of this. I know that Tim and Ron are still very active in showing.
1: You know what was funny? Ron Smelt actually he's been around for a long time. He's you know been dedicated to the hobby for decades and. I think he even he had the the blue and the chocolate or lilac Himalayan varieties recognized. He actually went for his rabbit registers like a rabbit judge license and worked under me. And I'm looking at him going, "This is really strange. I'm doing <laughs> longer than I've been alive, and now you're working under me for your rabbit license." Like,
0: yeah. Oh, he he did. He got the chocolate and lilac Himalayan um, variety recognized, which kind of pulled blues back from the dead. They they were kind of on the brink there for a little while. I didn't know um, that. Yeah, so yeah, in the ninety one ninety five standard, black and blue were the only recognized varieties of Himalayans. It was the mid to late 90s that the chocolates and lilacs came through. Very cool. So I think um, with that little K.V. segue, we're probably ready to hear from our guests today.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, great history, by the way. I know you're excited to get those old standards and uh, geek out on them. And uh, thanks for sharing it with all of us and, and me too. Okay, everyone, we're going to move on to our... Um, segment three of every podcast, and that's our special guest, where we love to inspire, entertain, and educate. And as Brian already said, um, we are going to uh, talk KVs this week, and our special guest is none other, none other than Linda Laux of Nampa, Idaho. Um, Linda has been in the fancy for 25 years. She's been a licensed ARBA KV judge since 2005. She raises, or has raised over the years, Americans, American Satins silkies and now peruvians in 2020 her golden agouti red and white peruvian boar named atlas won an incredible 18 consecutive best in shows including the 2020 west coast classic best of the best in shows against all best in show rabbits and KVs. and he became actually the first KV to win this coveted wcc title linda is also a very active participant in our industry including the current ARBA District One Director for the ACBA—that's the American KV Breeders Association—and since 2016, she has served the ARBA KV Standards Committee. Uh, without further ado, we welcome Linda Lauks from Idaho. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. How are you?
2: I'm fine. How are you?
1: Great. Thanks for coming on tonight. We really—we're really excited to um, talk KVs, and you get to be our first guest uh, on the KV side of things. So we couldn't think of anyone better, especially after the the year that you had going <laughs> Atlas and to, uh, to have you with us uh, on this podcast, episode five.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. So um, tell us, how did you get started in the KV hobby?
2: It was my daughter's fault. Um, <laughs> she, she went to college and rescued a guinea pig from a pet store who wasn't being treated very well. And then she got caught with him in her dorm room. And I got a frantic phone call, Mom, if, you bring him, if I bring him home, will you keep him? So I ended up with her pet cavey and he lived for a couple of years and I already knew Dana Colstad by that time and she found out I had a cavey and she pounced on me and, mm-hmm. um, insisted that I should now raise KV since I had one who was a very very bad teddy <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and I didn't end up raising teddies but um, I blame it on my daughter Janet and on Dana.
1: Did you ever imagine when you've took your daughter's university rescue back home that uh, you'd be doing this at the level you're doing it today
2: oh no not at all <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you're a licensed uh, kv judge and have been one since oh five tell us yes. where you've judged and maybe some of your more memorable shows
2: oh wow um probably the most memorable as far as where i judged was in uh, malaysia and that was three was it three years ago And um, I'm the only KV only judge they had had over there at that time. There's since been another one. But um, they invited me and I said, sure. So that was probably the most memorable. I've judged um, in Florida and North Carolina, soon to judge in Tennessee, all over the West and in Canada a little bit in British Columbia.
1: you are always on the move. I mean, I bump into you probably more than I bump into a lot of judges. I'm like, oh, Linda's here. You know, like, oh, we're either last weekend, we're talking about shows that are, you know, 20 hours apart, and we've both driven to them. So um, mm-hmm. you put a lot of miles on. I do. Yes. <laughs> um, as a judge, do you find that KVs differ around the country or do you find them uh, consistent? Because it's, that question's somewhat debated in rabbits, and I, I always have an answer for them, but I want to hear your like off the cuff uh, reply to that.
2: I see a difference. I see a difference between the eastern part of the US and the western part.
1: Can you be more specific? <laughs>
2: well, <clears throat> possibly offending people, I think the western half of the US has better quality overall. If you look at the standard and the description of the type and what is expected and the point where the points are set in each breed, I see more consistency and more top quality in the west than I do in the East, not saying that there aren't fine animals in the East.
1: There are, of there course. just seem
2: to be more of them out here.
1: Do you find that the KV shows on the Western side of the U S are, are bigger than the East coast as well, or are numbers fairly consistent?
2: No, I think there's are probably bigger
1: really? um,
2: or more consistent. Um,
1: What's a, what is a, a good KV show in size for, for you? If you're going to judge, if you're a single judge at, a show how many do you expect to judge in a show where you're like hey, those were good numbers today
2: well the way things have been 100 is a good number but yeah. i judged 160 last weekend wow. and that was pretty that's pretty decent show 200 pushes the limit uh for most of us as far as numbers we can do and still retain our sanity at the end of the day cavies <laughs> have a lot more comments than rabbits and a lot more things to look at and so it's it's a little more tiring you're talking more, and you're and you're handling the animals a little bit more. So, 200 animals is pushing the limit. We have had some of those. Tennessee last fall was 200 and some. Um, they expect 200 the end of April. Um, Reno is usually big. WCC, we usually, you know, the size there.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's it between be big part of the show.
2: Yeah, yeah, between um, probably between 150 and 200.
1: So speaking of West Coast Classic, that's a kind of a good segue into Atlas. Um, <laughs> tell everyone, because not everyone knew about this this guy, but tell us who Atlas is and how he came about and then his incredible story from 2020.
2: Oh, Atlas. He's He was a single baby born to one of my favorite boars and a favorite sow and big single. And he looked like Velvet. From the time he was born, and I've discovered that that is a very good sign in a Peruvian because their hair—they have ringlets, not ringlets—they have rosettes, and the hair kind of stands out from the body anyway a little bit. So this guy just looked like velvet, and he just—and he grew like a bad weed. He was about forty ounces at at uh, nine weeks. He was a big boy, and. Uh, the the breeding was planned, sort of, but I tend to put my best coats with my best coats and try to get it that way. The majority of the points on long hairs is on their coat quality. Um, even though we're trying hard to put a good barn underneath that paint, um, the coat does have the most points. So that's what I do. And I think he was an aberration. I really do. I think he was one in a million. Um, I don't know that I'll ever have another animal or handle another animal that was as as astounding as he is and he still is even with his short hair because he's cut back
1: so um, you knew you knew early on that he was special
2: i did i knew that from the beginning
1: what was uh, how old was he at his first show you said he was 8 weeks and 40 ounces
2: oh yeah he was huge so i didn't mm-hmm. i didn't even show him as a as a youngster because he immediately weighed was a senior weight and i'd have to show him against senior animals in coat Incredible. and he had 3 inches of hair so that didn't work um, I showed him in July. He was born the end of November, and I didn't show him until shows picked up out here in the West in July. And I took him to Oregon. Those were his first two shows, and he was best in show under Terry Jordahl and under Jason Whitehurst.
1: So that double best in show on his first weekend out.
2: Yeah, it was his first weekend out.
1: Pretty yeah. cool. Did you did you I, kind of foresee, and then like, okay, he's still got a career ahead of him. If I can get yes. some shows on the, if I can get some shows under him, um, yes. he's got a career ahead of him.
2: Yeah, he was the only one I kept in coat after convention was canceled. Where I just could not bear to cut him down. I cut everybody else down, put him in breeding. I could not bear to cut him down. And I thought, well, there's got to be a chance to show him somewhere.
1: Thank and goodness, there and, was. Yeah. Um, where did you take him? Because it wasn't just on the West where you're from, the, the, to my understanding, that he did well and, and swept the table. So where did you take Atlas uh, during those 18 Best in Shows?
2: <laughs> well, Four of them I got in Tennessee at the Southern States, uh, the big show, Southern States show in Knoxville, Tennessee. The, uh, when was that? The 1st of October?
1: I think so. Yeah. Must, must have been it, yes. How did you get him?
2: Yeah, it, I flew him in cabin with me. Under <laughs> the seat? Uh, which, which probably is not strictly allowed, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and uh, he traveled very well. He did fine until I got to. To Stephen, Margie, Lissieres, and then he decided to not drink for a while. So, but he came out of it all right, and he made it through the shows and kind of impressed everybody.
1: <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <That's interesting. laughs> and from from Tennessee, then you took him back uh, to the western side of the the country, right?
2: And his last show was um, WCC.
1: And tell us that what, happened, there. what I, happened.
2: I knew I needed to cut him down. He was much more important to me in the breeding pen then on mm-hmm. a show board, but I just had to show him while he was there. I, one wanted a million animal. I had to do it.
1: Did you, um, when you, when you won best in show uh, with Atlas in the KV shows at WCC, you know, that qualifies as, as, as you know, uh, that qualifies you for the best of the best, which includes KVs yes. against rabbits. So all best in shows yes. in the, the entire weekend go against each other, both youth and open mm-hmm. for the, for the one single prize. And, mm-hmm. um, did you think he had a shot?
2: I thought he had a shot, but I didn't think that he'd win the whole thing. I was quite honestly astonished.
1: Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember your face.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I cried a little. And
1: <laughs> yes, <yeah. laughs> moment. So Atlas becomes the first KV in WCC history to uh, to win that coveted best of the best, and he gets his uh, he gets or you, you get your name and uh, his title uh, on the perpetual trophy, which comes back every year. So we're excited to have him there and it's such a tribute to a really fitting animal. I mean, uh he he made a mark for sure.
2: I think he did. I feel very lucky that that I was able to have him and do as much as I did with him. He was amaz- is amazing.
1: So what goes into preparing a here, KV for a show career like what Atlas had? You I, know I know you raised peruvians but I believe you also have silkies.
2: Yeah, silkies are my my main love. I really didn't intend to raise peruvians. Um, and actually I didn't actively do that. Um, I got two Peruvian sows from Carol I to fix a problem that I had a uh, lack of density in the shoulder sweeps and the cheek sweeps on my silkies. Well, they fixed that and then some. So, um, I still get Peruvians popping out. Silky is, is, um, completely, um, recessive. So a silky is a silky is a silky. It can't carry anything. But so bred to a Peruvian, it gets, if the Peruvian... If it gets a Peruvian gene, it will express itself, and so I, you can get Peruvian babies from a Silky um, if it's bred to a Peruvian.
1: Got it. So when you're preparing, you said Atlas was born in November. Let's use him as a, like a model for preparing for show. You didn't show him. I know there was COVID restrictions, but you didn't show him until July. So what in that in that process before you showed him? Did I mean obviously you knew he was special, but what did you do to get him ready? And then how did you keep him in coat for? months afterwards
2: well he was um as soon as he was weaned he went into an individual cage and i have stacks of 18 by 18 single holes and then he lived by himself the rest of the time um as soon as his coat was he was a very tidy pig he didn't tend to sit where he peed etc so he went quite a while without any wraps whatsoever. I just would take him out every day and and run my fingers through his coat and make sure nothing was stuck in it. And I kept his cage clean. He had to, he got his cage picked out every day. Um, And he just, the wet spots basically. And when he was long and when his hair was long enough to get in a wrap and he needed it, I put two wraps in his rear sweep because he had too much hair for one. And then as the hair grew and, and it would, the rest of his body would tolerate wraps or he was ready for it. Then I just, he lived in seven wraps total for a long time when he was young because there was just too much hair for five and he was a big body. So So with that big body, I had to put seven wraps around him.
1: So five is a typical number of wraps for uh, a longer. For those listening that maybe aren't familiar with KVs, uh, what is a wrap by the way?
2: (laughs) Well, it depends on what you want to use, but I use paper towels and then around the rear one, I put a, a piece of uh, wax paper to keep the wet, if they do get wet, from soaking up into the hair. But a wrap is a paper towel, and it's folded around a section of hair and then folded or rolled up next to the body and then put a rubber band around it to hold it there. It keeps the length of the hair out of the bedding and out of anything he decides to get into, wet spots, et cetera. It takes a a fairly tolerant animal to put up with the wraps because it feels strange. And a lot of them will chew out their wraps when you first put them in. You can't put them in too tight. So it it takes a tolerant laid back animal to put up with it. And most long hairs are bred that way. So other than than taking him out and, and playing with him every day, he also got time to sit on a board so that he'd sit still because we can't have him running off the show board. So (laughs) So,
1: why don't you go to that too while you start (laughs) starting to open it up? What is a show board and and is it applicable to all KV breeds?
2: No, just long hairs. And it's a 16 by 16 by four inch tall burlap covered board, natural colored burlap with four handholds, one on either side. And it's the suggested method of showing long hairs in coat. Youngsters can sit on the table or can go in coops, but uh, the short haired breeds don't need it. It's just to keep the hair neat and to present the animal.
1: And, um, back to Alice. when did you know, I mean, obviously you're, it was West Coast classics. So later in the fall shows are, are closing anyway, because the holiday is coming up, but is there something about a coat in a Peruvian or a long hair KV that tells you it's time to, you know, wrap up the show career?
2: Yes. Yeah, there is. And he had started to, to get to that point right after Tennessee. Um, he had a little stress in Tennessee because he didn't drink for two days and I noticed that right before uh, WCC. He had begun to shed a little more than usual. Long hair shed anyway, but not, usually not a great deal. That's how they keep all that density for that long a time, and their hair will start to become coarse. Um, The ends are still softer because it's the original hair, but up at the top of the body, um, Peruvians are, are parted down the middle. You can feel that coarseness starting in there, and it's a natural um, effect of age on a long hair. So remember- he had started to get that a little bit over his shoulders and he had started to lose a bit, little bit of hair. And he was a little weaker in the rear sweep than the sides when I showed him at WCC.
1: So those are just natural tendencies for a coat and a long-haired animal, correct?
2: Yes, yes. I kept him in coat a lot longer than most people will. Um, usually six, seven, eight months. and And they're important to breeding. So they go in. If they're good, they get cut back.
1: Oh, and breed right. it. Do you, um in, in long-haired cavies, once they're done with a show career, do they ever get to come back? Do they ever look as good or as fresh?
2: No, they never will. Um, people have tried even shaving them or clipping them off with the clippers, but he's an agouti, so unless you pull his hair out by the roots, he will never have tips on his hair again. Um, the agouti has, in his case, he's a golden agouti. The tips are red, and the base is black, um, or very, very dark. His was black besides it's uh, against regulations that would be considered an altered coat
1: because of the cutting. So it,
2: yeah. It can't be cut down and grown. I mean, you can do it, but, but it, the animal won't place.
1: And it would be obvious.
2: Right. It's very obvious.
1: Okay, cool. So um, I know you have a Katie background, but I have a sinking suspicion because I think I've seen you with a few. Um, do you uh, raise rabbits as well?
2: I do. Yeah. What do you have? I raised Dutch for years and uh, got out of those when I, got my KV license, basically, because I didn't have the time that I thought I should be spending with my rabbits. Um, and right now, <laughs> I have four dwarf papillons. Five, if you count hey. the buck I borrowed.
1: <laughs> uh, there's another KV judge up in that area that has some dwarf papillons, I believe.
2: Yeah, it's Cindy Newton.
1: Yep. Yep. Very cool. What attracted you to the breed?
2: The dwarf papillons? Yeah. Um, the way they look. I had checkered giants off and on. I've had a couple of, of bucks that I showed for a friend on the other side of the state. And I just I liked the way they looked and believe it or not, I liked their personality. Hmm. And the Papillons are a whole lot nicer. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, they sure are. Their teeth are a lot less a lot less big too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> for sure. Um it sounds like you've got a thing for markings. It's funny, uh, do you raise marked KBs as well?
2: I do have some TSWs and I do have some broken colors. So yeah, they are and they're hard to do. They're just like any other marked breed. Um, I don't do Dutch KVs. I thought about it, but I don't. It's just uh, the markings are not genetically set the way they are in the rabbits, and so hmm. you don't get just the the marking differences we get on rabbits. We get everything in the world.
1: So, so it's harder to harder to breed consistency.
2: Yes, it's very KVs. frustrating. Yeah, TSWs and broken colors are about as as much as I want of that. <laughs>
1: so. <laughs> So speaking of rabbits, and uh, you said you, read, you have dwarf papillons and had Dutch and checker giants over the years, um, you can speak really from both sides. I know you're you're a KV judge and not a rabbit judge, though. We'd love to have you one day. Um, what <laughs> what do you find are the differences between raising and showing uh, KVs uh, compared to rabbits? Because you know we both come under the, the the parent organization, the ARBA. What are some of the the biggest differences you see between rabbits and KVs in the ARBA?
2: Oh wow, that's kind of a hard one. Um. I'm very um, I'm very prejudiced in favor of the the KVs I guess because I've made I think I've made more and better friends through the KV fancy than I did with rabbits. I got to know a number of wonderful people with rabbits and a lot of the older time Dutch breeders. Wayne McKinnon was a very good friend and uh, people like that. But the the KVs it feels more like a community and I like. That feeling. Um, I have a lot of friends that will long be friends after we no longer have animals. Um, but as far as, as I think Arva now is much friendlier and much more KV oriented, much more KV friendly than than they had been. Uh, when I first started, KVs were definitely kind of second class. And over the last 15, 20 years, it's definitely changed, radically changed. And we all we feel like we're part of ARBA. And that's, we feel that's awesome. Yeah, it really is. And I appreciate that greatly because I lived through part of it where we weren't
1: <laughs> much right. of a part of ARBA. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier the difference in judging, how it takes a little bit longer to judge KVs. You said that there are a lot more points to go over. Um mm-hmm. where, you know, compared to rabbits. For us, we say if you do two fifty in a day as a rabbit judge, you know, that that's a full day, right? Mm-hmm. Um why do you think that is maybe could you elaborate on why it might take you know the same amount of time to do 150 or 160 vs as a rabbit judge might take you know the same time to do 250 rabbits
2: well you're commenting on more things it isn't just type it isn't just the hair it isn't you know you're each breed is slightly different um It takes a little bit longer to do long hairs because you have to evaluate the coat. And then it's the time it takes to handle the animal. And handling animals in coat is a pretty delicate thing. That slows a lot of judges down. We also have more awards per breed. We have best junior, best intermediate, best senior and uh, we have nineteen varieties for instance, or yeah nineteen varieties now in every breed so just going through those and then eliminating you could keep your best and best opposite of varieties for your breed that takes a long time and it it's it just seems like there's more comments to be made on on kVs. I wish we could go through it I can if I'm not having to to um, work with a with a with a card, mm-hmm. with a coupe card, if it's if it's uh, just, I can't think right now, the control sheet, it's easier to talk through it like like you would a goat class. Okay. You know, this one is losing on type. It, uh, granted this to the one above, or, you know, to the that one, and I could go up a class that way easier than I can going down the cards and giving you reasons, um, and it would go faster. But people still like the comment cards, so that's right. what a lot of shows use them still.
1: So one other thing that's different, I think, with KV's that I've watched over the years, and you touched on it earlier when you were giving us Atlas's history, is that, it, and maybe this will lead into it, but it seems like a lot of KV breeders often have several KV breed breeds, which in rabbits sounds like that's like a, a lot to ch- that's a challenge to juggle a lot of um, different breeds. So um, you know, because focus, you can only have so much time in a day. But it seems like right. KV breeders often often raise and very successfully several breeds so Mm -hmm. maybe and i'm i guess i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to answer for you but maybe you could touch on that that portion of atlas for example that is maybe part of that you know the 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 idea of crossbreeding that is maybe (laughs) more common in KVs. i I would like to ask
2: well we don't we don't when i when i hear you say crossbreeding i'm thinking of breeding one breed to another breed like an abby to an american um which we don't do. Some long hair breeds you can cross. And now we're allowed to have satins in with the normal coats as far as pedigrees on certain animals, you know, on the animals too, which includes long hairs as well as Americans, American satins and habbies, that that sort of thing. But um, there are some crosses that can benefit the teddy, other than putting the satin variety in with the normal coats, Usually, the short-coated breeds are not crossed, um, but it happens a lot in long hairs, mainly to improve a certain aspect, like I was looking for better uh, shoulder sweeps and cheek sweeps, so I got animals from a breeder who is known to have very heavy shoulder sweeps on her animals and beautiful frontals and cheek sweeps, and it did fix the problem, fix my silkies right up, and that's that's what I needed. well, you, you wouldn't want to breed a Peruvian to a cornet, for instance, because the rosettes are in all different places, and that could be just an absolute disaster. Um, but Peruvians and Silkies cross, Silkies and Cornets cross, Silkies cross with anything because they're dilute.
1: Hmm.
2: Or not dilute, recessive, totally mm-hmm. recessive.
1: So, And um, you might be raising Americans, for example, and you could get satins that, that pop up. Is that that's common?
2: If you've got a satin in the background, yes. And satins have always tended to be just a little bit, not quite as um, hardy, maybe. Uh, they tend to live a little bit less, um, you know, shorter life, and they're not quite as hardy. By breeding them to a normal coat, it does help them. They're a little stronger, a little bigger. And when the satins pop out, that is another recessive gene. And so when it is is a satin, it is a satin. Um, doesn't carry anything else. But crossing it back keeps the, the strength and the size. I know of a breeder in Oregon who bred satin silkies for 10 years. And she bred satin to satin to satin for 10 years. And her animals made senior weight at four months of age. And she didn't have any of these issues. It, but she culled, culled relentlessly. Mm-hmm. She was very good at what she did and very good at culling. And, uh, and that's how she – so it is possible. You can do it. Just most of us are too lazy to do it that way.
1: <laughs> do uh, do introducing satins into any of these breeds help the the non-satinized version of the breed? Is there any is there any advantage to breeding, say, a satin American to an American or a, a, a satin silky to a silky?
2: Well, for the satin, yeah. yes, it it, it um, improves their their hardiness right. and their size. But for the non-satin in Americans, it will make the coat a little softer. And they are there are points on texture and and density of coat even for Ameri- even for Americans short hairs, um, long hairs. It in my experience, I can very often I can tell a satin carrier long hair because they're just a little softer. There's just a little bit different texture to them, and sometimes because of that, it's the hair shaft is being smaller. That feels like there is a difference in density, even though they're probably really isn't in hairs per square inch. Probably not. But because it's a little softer and silkier, it feels a little different.
1: Because it takes up less area, essentially. Yeah. That's very interesting. I I believe the same in rabbits, too.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't happen every time. I don't feel it in every satin cross, but I can feel it in a lot of them. And I know other judges say the same thing. They can tell. They'll look up and say, oh, satin cross.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, When it comes to raising cavies, uh, what's the big difference in terms of of caging and housing versus rabbits?
2: Cavies are not on wire; they're on in right, they live right in their bedding. And, and I know places like Malaysia, they do raise them on wire, but they raise them on coated wire or um, the pads that have the holes in them, so like they're a not mat. sitting. Yeah, kind of like a resting mat. Theirs are a little bit different, I think, but
1: kind and you of can, the same thing. You can keep several sows together in one colony. Do you want yeah, to talk that's about another, that?
2: That's another difference with KVs. Um, a lot of us colony breed and it's it's the easiest way to do it. A boar and four three or four sows, they're happy. Um, they stay together um, unless you don't want them backbred the boar stays in. Uh, they actually get along. KVs are very gregarious in in nature. They live in groups. And they they like being with other KVs. My long hairs, when I cut them down and give them roommates, they're just happy as they can be because they've mm. been alone for six or eight months. And so even though they can see everybody across the room, it's not the same as having a roommate. They and do really, yeah, they're very gregarious little little characters.
1: And when a KV, when a sow has babies, do you remove the boar or do you, do you leave them all together in the colony?
2: It's uh, an individual choice. If I want the sow bred back, I'll leave the boar in. If I would rather not, if she's not in very good condition or she's had a rough time, I'll move the boar out. They will breed back within 12 hours.
1: Wow. So they so, don't have a yeah. heat cycle?
2: Um, they do. They kind of cycle every 16 days, and but they will cycle immediately after giving birth. Cabies are prey animals. They're prey animals in the wild, and that's the way they're designed in order to keep the populations up. Otherwise, they die out in a hurry.
1: They're survivors. So, <laughs> they're they're survivors. survivors by population, yeah. Yep. Interesting. So what advice would you give to a rabbit breeder who was thinking about taking on KVs? And is there a certain breed that you would recommend for a first-timer?
2: Anything with short hair.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> a first-timer doesn't want to have to deal with all that hair. It's, it's a little daunting. Um, I, would, I would suggest, and I do frequently, that people attend a show and go walk around looking at the KVs on the table and in people's cages, talk to people. See what they raise, and ask them why they like that, and what the personalities are like, and how they would, um, how that breed would do with a 4-H kid, and how are they with a six-year-old versus a, a 75-year-old? You know, how do they, how do they interact with people? And some, some varieties of some breeds are a little bit on the wild side, and they never settle down. Others are just mellow and sit there. Um, I always recommend that people go to shows and look around and see what what kind of strikes their fancy and then talk to the people about it. Um, I would recommend those short hairs. Americans or Abbeys are very good first-timers because they're busy and they're fun and they're very interactive and they talk a lot and people seem to like that. Americans, pretty much the same way, but they sit still a little bit better.
1: (laughs) And you talked about kids. Uh, Do you have a, a healthy population of youth exhibitors with the ACBA showing?
2: In different parts of the country, yes, they're more active in some parts than in others. Obviously, with the Texas, with the Houston Livestock Show this last week, um, that is a record youth entry, and that was only youth. They didn't have an open show.
1: Correct. Yeah. So
2: that's pretty youth. amazing. We have anywhere from five to, let's see, what did I have last weekend? Thirty-five, and that was pretty good. Thirty-five youth animals in Arizona. So that's,
1: and do you, you were judging in Arizona last weekend. Yes. Very cool. And do you find that um, Brian and I talk about this a lot on the podcast that uh, we have such great mentors in our in our rabbit side? You know, mm-hmm. t- you want to talk about the camaraderie and the mentorship? You talked about camaraderie earlier in the KV community, but mm-hmm. how is the mentorship between, you know, new kids or or new people uh, and, the you know, the veterans like yourself?
2: For the most part, I think it's very good. Um you the ones that that make the most noise are the ones who've had the bad experiences and there there are bad apples in every barrel but the people that i know um welcome new breeders whether it's kids or adults we do all we can to make them feel welcome and i'm i'm a big advocate of selling animals to youth that are your not maybe you maybe not your best but certainly what you would sell to another breeder don't take youth for granted and 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 slough off your culls and, and you're not quite as good quality. It's important to keep kids well in new new breeders. It's important to keep them interested. And by selling them decent animals that do pretty well on a show table, we'll certainly keep their interests going. I think that's really important. And most of us do that. Like I said, there are a few that don't, but the majority of us do that. And I think that's what keeps people coming back to us and what keeps them involved in the hobby. Um four h is another big one in certain states my four h in this state is tremendous it's wonderful in Washington and oregon the same way I'm not as acquainted with it in other states but four h is a huge a huge thing a c b a does a lot as much as they can for the youth, but it seems to vary in different parts of the country whether the kids are as involved. We've even started a scholarship fund for um a c b a youth that are heading to college. And so they, anybody who, any youth who's active in this is eligible to apply for this. And it is finally going to be used this fall, I believe.
1: That's very cool. So it sounds like kids are a big part of ACBA and.
2: Oh, definitely. They're a
1: As an important, yeah, an event, uh, an important facet of, of what's to come um, of on, on a different subject. What advice would you give to ARBA rabbit judges who go on to seek ARBA KV judge licenses because this is something that we've seen kind of on the rise in the last few years. What what advice would you give rabbit judges that are going on to to do the KV aspect of things?
2: Raise (laughs) KVs. Raise KVs. A lot of us, you you don't have a a lot of, um, I can't think of the word I want. Uh, (laughs) um, We'll feel a lot better about hiring you if you actually have experience in raising KVs. I feel if you don't raise them, you don't understand how they develop, and it's a lot different reading a book and looking at an animal on the table and reading the book and watching them grow, um, especially long hairs, especially Texels. They develop so wildly and so differently that you just you don't get a real feel for the hobby unless you actually raise them. I'm not saying they should raise every breed, but I think they should have a long hair or two to coat out, and I think they definitely should raise some of the more interesting breeds, teddies, abbies. Americans are very common and very easy to get. That right, would be my biggest piece of advice. Raise them.
1: That's great advice. And we had Josh Humphreys on, um, one of our earlier episodes, and he was talking about getting a judge license. And he said that when he was younger, what he wanted to do in rabbits was to raise as many rabbit breeds as possible, because that would better prepare him for mm-hmm. a, a, a rabbit judge license. So I, you know, it sounds like what you're saying with, you know, rabbit breeders or rabbit judges moving on to the KV side, that, that, firsthand experience will really serve them well over time.
2: I think so. Yes. And it'll give them a lot, a lot more uh, oomph as far as all of us wanting to hire them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, so the respect aspect will be, will be elevated as well.
2: It kind of, it kind of indicates that they're seriously interested in this hobby and uh, not just in it so they can travel.
1: Totally cool. One last question for you. Um, Describe your perfect KV show. (laughs)
2: <laughs> my perfect KV show. Oh my goodness. Um,
1: doesn't have to have happened yet by the way. So just, uh, in theory, what would that show be like?
2: Keep the table full all the time. Um, don't have the judge waiting around for things. Um, keep, keep water. Um, you don't necessarily have to feed the judge. Sometimes it's a good idea. Uh, but just keep water going and keep the table full. That's the biggest thing. Standing around is, is yeah. So my ideal is to have, that, have the show running efficiently and consistently throughout the day. Also have, very, have efficient and knowledgeable table writers, especially if it's a large show. If it's a small show, I'm happy to train somebody or work with a new, a new scribe. That's fine. But, but if it's a big show, please give me experienced table writers and have people. It would be nice if people would get their animals to the table when they're called instead of yelling and yelling and yelling. That's the standing around part is is very difficult. <laughs> I don't think it's any different than rabbit shows. Uh, um, certainly, is not. Yeah, it would also be nice to have either air conditioner or heated facilities, of course, and rubber mats to stand on and table the correct height. So those are, you know, those are kind of things. And most everybody does that. Those are not issues, but, but they're little things that make a big difference.
1: Um, just a quick, like off, Kind of on the same topic, but at your perfect show, do you do you get to spend time with your friends and maybe go to dinner afterwards?
2: Oh yes, definitely dinner to margarita
1: or scotch. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> we're, oh, we're that kind of That's
2: that's the best part of the whole show is seeing the people and visiting with everybody before and after. And uh, yes, I love that part. That's the best.
1: Very cool, Linda. Thank you so much for your time tonight. We appreciate you being on episode five and sharing your your experience in your many many years in the KV industry and, uh, and on the the rabbit side too, we appreciate the perspective from both sides and we hope that that inspires and, and enlightens uh, our guests. So thank you very much for taking time.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: No problem. And why don't you stick with us because we're going to roll into segment four, which is about education. And I am not a KV person, not a KV breeder. I did try for my <laughs> register's license. It was tragic. Um, but I did come up with some uh, education uh, topics and uh, just some okay. tidbits. And I want you to be there to slap my wrist when I'm wrong, okay?
2: Oh, dear. Okay. Right.
1: <laughs> you can do it, Linda. I know you can. <laughs> um, all right. So KVs actually became part of the ARBA early on. In fact, at one time, the ARBA was called the American Rabbit and KV Breeders Association. The American Cavy Breeders Association currently is the parent specialty club, which oversees the membership of all cavy breeders. And there's not just, uh, there aren't single clubs dedicated to cavey breeds like we see in rabbits. We see in, instead one parent organization, which encompasses all 13 recognized breeds. Um, with that said, there are 13 recognized breeds of KVs, five of which are uh, have a satin counterpart, the Abyssinian satin, the American satin, Peruvian satin, silky satin, and teddy satin. So far, am I right?
2: Did you say American?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, American I did. Abby. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. American Abby, Teddy, Silky, Peruvian. Yes.
1: Cool. And all 13 KV breeds, this is always really interesting to rabbit people, have the same minimum and maximum weights for all age groups. So yes. that, makes, that makes things easier when you're going to, uh, when you're judging, I'm sure, because you don't have to keep looking up weights because they're all the same, correct? Mm-hmm.
2: Yes, very much so. Yeah.
1: And KV variety as across the standard of perfection are uniform except for white and white crested, um, and that's something that's new, correct? Not ever, not before this or before this previous standard. KV breeds recognized colors or varieties that were um, not necessarily unique to them, but not every breed recognized the same varieties, correct?
2: Very correct. Yes. So now they did, do. How did,
1: how, did, how was that how was that um, taken amongst the KV community? Was that uh, you know something that everyone was excited about?
2: The change to all varieties yes. across all breeds, yes, very excited about that. Um, yeah, there are a lot of people wanting to raise tan long hairs, and now the tan pattern is is accepted in all breeds. So yes, that's just an example.
1: Very cool. Um, to become a licensed ARBA KV judge, the process is pretty much like rabbits. You have to take a written and oral exam, and then work under eight different KV shows. Um, The one difference, correct, is that uh, for those applicants applying for a KV judge license, you only have to register or have registered 15 KVs prior to applying, whereas in rabbits, you have to have 35 registered. Is that still correct? That's still correct. Very good. Thanks for backing me up. Hey, I got it. Maybe I should (laughs) now... I don't. I, I don't raise enough KVs to go for that again. It was, we can uh, it fix was, that. It was. It was. <laughs> there are KVs in my barn. Trust me.
2: <laughs> I know.
1: I don't think I have the heart. <laughs> I've got. To, I've got to, I've got Angora goats. Don't forget about that. So I'm not. I am oh, still cool, species. Um and I'm gonna give a plug for you guys. The the to find out more information about KVs, the ACBA or American KV Brooders Association has a fantastic website. I was going over it last night looking for tidbits and things to share on this podcast. And um, that's com Again, acbaonline.com for the American KV Breeders Association. Any more plugs you want to give uh, the KV community, Linda, while we've got you on?
2: Sure. You were just talking about our website. That is um, taken care of by Carrie Hurdle from Oregon. She does a fantastic job.
1: Fantastic job. Absolutely. Su- super easy to, to navigate through and it's just chock full of great information. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, Linda, thanks again for hanging out and uh, for hanging out in this, uh, this education section to make sure that I didn't mess up too badly. <laughs>
2: you didn't mess up. You're fine.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Have a good night. You too. Thank you. All right, Bryony, that leads us to the end of podcast five.
0: Well, that was fascinating. I love that. Um, I was actually one of the judges at West Coast Classic who had the privilege to handle Atlas. And even though I'm not a KV judge, my KV experience is pretty limited. When an animal's that good, you can tell. I mean, it just, it just stands out. It's different. Um, I think it's really fun. The last few years at West Coast Classic, when we do the best of the best, the KV judges and rabbit judges tend to team up and go through each animal. And the rabbit judges will tell the KV judges, you know, here's what we look at. Here's what I like and don't like about this animal. And the KV judges will do the same. And I know um, I asked a couple of the KV judges, so, you know, on a, on a scale of one to hundred, you know, how would you, give points to this animal or what do you think of this KV? Cause I mean, it looks like a pretty good one to me. And the response I got was this is a once in a lifetime KV. Um, so it was really, it was fun to choose it. It was fun to see a KV compete with rabbits like that. I know, um, I teared up a little bit when mm-hmm. Linda was so excited, but that's kind of me. You know, I, the notebook, oh, that's a cute movie. I watched Secretariat videos and cry, um, but, but it was exciting and it was wonderful. And it was a privilege for me um, as someone who doesn't have him, to be able to get my hands on an animal like
1: that. Uh, Linda described it pretty much like you did that he's one in a million. So he was, he was the kind of animal you just, you just couldn't pass up. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely
1: pretty cool. She had me, uh, she gave me a second to, to feel the tips of his coat. He was already wrapped up, uh, or sort of wrapped up when I saw him after the best of the best. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a fur and kind of hair freak cause I have goats Angora goats. And she was talking about the density of the tips. And I remember that being a, like a real pinnacle feature about him, that he was as dense or nearly as dense at the base as he was at his tips, which is, you know, that has to do with condition and, and, and really good genetics and breeding. So, um, yeah, that was, it was so fun to, to watch that pig go that far. Um, at West Coast Classic and have that tribute. And it certainly deserves so.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as as a human with a long, straight, uh, fairly slick hair, um, <laughs> I, I aspire to that density in my hands. <laughs> and, you know, I, I use product to try to get that texture.
1: <laughs> you do a darn good job at it, by the way.
0: But but yeah, it was it was a great experience. I'm glad I had that. And just, you know, to hear her talk about this is, has been so much fun. I, I enjoy
1: learning about KBs. We'll have to get more KV breeders and judges on in the future to uh, share their side of things and, and enlighten us all. Absolutely. I can't wait. All right. I think with that said, we're going to wrap up Episode 5. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And don't forget, talk rabbits and KVs. I know it's a tough time for all of us not being at shows and being with all of our community, but we're all going to come back really soon. Have a great night. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.net.